TED Audio Collective. Hello, and welcome to TED Health, part of the TED Audio Collective. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. This week, we're listening to a talk from Andrew Morantz, who embedded himself in the far corners of the internet to see how trolls and propagandists actually get online misinformation to spread. After the talk, stick around to hear about some of the cognitive science behind social media platforms and how they capitalize on our brain's natural wiring. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab investing themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this podcast comes from The Wonderful Company. If that name doesn't sound familiar to you, you probably know the pistachios that come from this company. Wonderful Pistachios is one of the highest protein nuts. Get snacking and get cracking with a snack that packs a protein punch. I love the various wonderful pistachio flavors. So in addition to the original flavor, I'm particularly fond of the salt and vinegar. And I keep little packets of them in my car so that I can eat and get some protein on the run. Visit wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. Add a little curiosity into your routine with TED Talks Daily, the podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday. In less than 15 minutes a day, you'll go beyond the headlines and learn about the big ideas shaping your future. Coming up, how AI will change the way we communicate, how to be a better leader, and more. Listen to TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. I spent the past three years talking to some of the worst people on the internet. Now, if you've been online recently, you may have noticed that there's a lot of toxic garbage out there. Racist memes, misogynist propaganda, viral misinformation. So I wanted to know who was making this stuff. I wanted to understand how they were spreading it. Ultimately, I wanted to know what kind of impact it might be having on our society. So in 2016, I started tracing some of these memes back to their source back to the people who were making them or who were making them go viral, I'd approach those people and say, hey, I'm a journalist, can I come watch you do what you do? Now, often the response would be, why in hell would I want to talk to some low-T, soy-boy, Brooklyn globalist Jew cuck who's in cahoots with the Democrat Party? (laughs) To which my response would be, look, man, that's only 57% true. (laughs) But often I got the opposite response. Yeah, sure, come on by. So that's how I ended up in the living room of a social media propagandist in Southern California. He was a married white guy in his late 30s. He had a a table in front of him with a mug of coffee, a laptop for tweeting, a phone for texting, and an iPad for live streaming to Periscope and YouTube. That was it. 
And yet, with those tools, he was able to propel his fringe, noxious talking points into the heart of the American conversation. For example, one of the days I was there,、uh, a bomb had just exploded in New York, and the guy accused of planting the bomb had a Muslim-sounding name. Now, to the propagandist in California, this seemed like an opportunity, because one of the things he wanted was for the U.S. to cut off almost all immigration, especially from Muslim-majority countries. So he started live streaming, getting his followers worked up into a frenzy about how the open borders agenda was going to kill us all, and asking them to tweet about this. And use specific hashtags, trying to get those hashtags trending. And tweet they did, hundreds and hundreds of tweets. And in the minds of some conspiracists online, George Soros is like a globalist boogeyman. He's a Hungarian billionaire and philanthropist, one of a few elites who's secretly manipulating all of global affairs. Now, just pause here. If this idea sounds familiar to you, that there are a few elites who control the world, and a lot of them happen to be rich Jews. That's because it is one of the most anti-Semitic tropes in existence. I should also mention that the guy in New York who planted that bomb, he was an American citizen. So whatever else was going on there, immigration was not the main issue. And the propagandist in California, he understood all this. He was a well-read guy. He was actually a lawyer. He knew the underlying facts, but he also knew that facts do not drive conversation online. What drives conversation online is emotion. See, the original premise of social media was that it was going to bring us all together, make the world more open and tolerant and fair, and it did some of that. But the social media algorithms have never been built to distinguish between what's true or false, what's good or bad for society, what's pro-social and what's anti-social. That's just not what those algorithms do. A lot of what they do is measure engagement, clicks, comments, shares, retweets, that kind of thing. And if you want your content to get engagement, It has to spark emotion, specifically what behavioral scientists call high arousal emotion. Now, high arousal doesn't only mean sexual arousal, although it's the internet. Obviously, that works. It means anything, positive or negative, that gets people's hearts pumping. So I would sit with these propagandists, not just the guy in California, but dozens of them, and I would watch as they did this again and again successfully. Not because they were Russian hackers, not because they were tech prodigies. Not because they had unique political insights, just because they understood how social media worked and they were willing to exploit it to their advantage. Now, at first, I was able to tell myself this was a fringe phenomenon, something that was relegated to the internet. But there's really no separation anymore between the internet and everything else. This stuff that once seemed so shocking and marginal and frankly just ignorable, it's now so normalized that we hardly even notice it. So I spent about three years in this world. I talked to a lot of people. Some of them seem to have no core beliefs at all. They just seem to be betting, perfectly rationally, that if they wanted to make some money online or get some attention online, they should just be as outrageous as possible. But I talked to other people who were true ideologues, and to be clear, their ideology was not traditional conservatism. Right? These were people who wanted to revoke female suffrage. These are people who wanted to go back to racial segregation. Some of them wanted to do away with democracy altogether. Now, obviously, these people were not born believing these things. They didn't pick them up in elementary school. A lot of them, before they went down some internet rabbit hole, they had been libertarian, or they'd been socialist, or they'd been something else entirely. So, what was going on? Well, I can't generalize about every case, but a lot of the people I spoke to, they seemed to have a combination of a high IQ and a low EQ. Right? They seemed to take comfort in anonymous online spaces rather than connecting in the real world. 
So often they would retreat to these message boards or these subreddits where they, their worst impulses would be magnified. They might start out saying something just as a sick joke, and then they would get so much positive reinforcement for that joke, so many meaningless internet points, as they called it, that they might start believing their own joke. I talked a lot with one young woman who grew up in New Jersey, and then after high school she moved to a new place and suddenly she just felt alienated and cut off and started retreating into her phone. She found some of these spaces on the internet where people would post the most shocking, heinous things. And she found this stuff really off-putting, but also kind of engrossing, kind of like she couldn't look away from it. She started interacting with people in these online spaces, and they made her feel smart, they made her feel validated. She started feeling a sense of community, started wondering if maybe some of these shocking memes might actually contain a kernel of truth. A few months later, she was in a car with some of her new internet friends, headed to Charlottesville, Virginia, to march with torches in the name of the white race. She'd gone in a few months from Obama supporter to fully radicalized white supremacist. Now, in her particular case, she actually was able to find her way out of the cult of white supremacy. But a lot of the people I spoke to were not. And just to be clear, I was never so convinced that I had to find common ground with every single person I spoke to that I was willing to say, you know what, man, you're a fascist propagandist, I'm not. Whatever, let's just hug it out. All our differences will melt away. No, absolutely not. But I did become convinced that we cannot just look away from this stuff. We have to try to understand it, because only by understanding it can we even start to inoculate ourselves against it. In my three years in this world, I got a few nasty phone calls, even some threats, but it wasn't a fraction of what female journalists get on this beat. And yeah, I am Jewish, although, weirdly, a lot of the Nazis couldn't tell I was Jewish, which I frankly just found kind of disappointing. <laughs> Seriously, like, your whole job is being a professional anti-Semite. <laughs> Nothing about me is tipping you off at all. <laughs> Nothing. This is not a secret. I, I, my name is Andrew Morantz. I write for The New Yorker. My personality type is like if a Seinfeld episode was taped at the Park Slope Food Co-op. Nothing. <laughs> anyway, look, you know, ultimately, it would be nice if there were like a simple formula. You know, smartphone plus alienated kid equals 12% chance of Nazi. It's obviously not that simple. And in my writing, I'm much more comfortable being descriptive, not prescriptive. But this is Ted, so let's get practical. Uh, I want to share a few suggestions of things that citizens of the internet, like you and I, might be able to do to make things a little bit less toxic. So the first one is to be a smart skeptic. So I think there are two kinds of skepticism, and I don't want to drown you in technical, epistemological tech, uh, information here, but I call them smart and dumb skepticism. So <laughs> smart skepticism, thinking for yourself, questioning every claim, demanding evidence, great. That's real skepticism. Dumb skepticism, it, it sounds like skepticism, but it's actually closer to knee-jerk contrarianism. Everyone says the Earth is round, you say it's flat. Everyone says racism is bad, you say, I don't know, I'm skeptical about that. I, I cannot tell you how many young white men I have spoken to in the last few years who have said, you know, the media, and my teachers, they're all trying to indoctrinate me into believing in male privilege and white privilege, but I don't know about that, man, I don't think so. Guys, contrarian white teens of the world, look, 
if you are being a round earth skeptic and a male privilege skeptic and a racism is bad skeptic, you're not being a skeptic, you're being a jerk. It's great to be independent-minded. We all should be independent-minded, but just be smart about it. So this next one's about free speech. So you will hear smart, accomplished people who will say, well, I'm pro-free speech, right? And they say it in this way that it's like they're settling a debate, when actually that is the very beginning of any meaningful conversation. All the interesting stuff happens after that point. Okay, you're pro-free speech. What does that mean? Does it mean that David Duke and Richard Spencer need to have active Twitter accounts? Does it mean that anyone can harass anyone else online for any reason? You know, I looked through the entire list of TED speakers this year. I didn't find a single round-earth skeptic. Is that a violation of free speech norms? Look, we're all pro-free speech. It's wonderful to be pro-free speech. But if that's all you know how to say again and again, you're standing in the way of a more productive conversation. Making decency cool again. So, great. Yeah. I don't even need to explain it. I, um, so in my research, I would go to Reddit or YouTube or Facebook, and I would search for Sharia law, or I'd search for the Holocaust. And you might be able to guess what the algorithm showed me, right? Is Sharia law sweeping across the United States? Did the Holocaust really happen? Dumb skepticism. So we've ended up in this bizarre dynamic online where some people see bigoted propaganda as being edgy or being dangerous and cool, And people see basic truth and human decency as pearl-clutching or virtue-signaling or just boring. And the social media algorithms, whether intentionally or not, they have incentivized this. Because bigoted propaganda is great for engagement. Everyone clicks on it, everyone comments on it, whether they love it or they hate it. So the number one thing that has to happen here is social networks need to fix their platforms. So if you're listening to my voice and you work at a social media company or you invest in one or, I don't know, own one, this tip is for you. If you have been optimizing for maximum emotional engagement and maximum emotional engagement turns out to be actively harming the world, it's time to optimize for something else. But in addition to putting pressure on them to do that and waiting for them and hoping that they'll do that, there's some stuff that the rest of us can do, too. So we can create some better pathways or suggest some better pathways for angsty teens to go down. If you see something that you think is really creative and thoughtful and you want to share that thing, you can share that thing, even if it's not flooding you with high arousal emotion. Now, that is a very small step, I realize. But in the aggregate, this stuff does matter. Because these algorithms, as powerful as they are, they are taking their behavioral cues from us. So let me leave you with this. You know, a few years ago, it was really fashionable to say that the internet was a revolutionary tool that was going to bring us all together. It's now more fashionable to say that the internet is a huge, irredeemable dumpster fire. Neither caricature is really true, right? We know the internet is just too vast and complex to be all good or all bad. And the danger with these ways of thinking whether it's the utopian view that the internet will inevitably save us or the dystopian view that it will inevitably destroy us, either way, we're letting ourselves off the hook. There is nothing inevitable about our future. The internet is made of people. People make decisions at social media companies. People make hashtags trend or not trend. People make societies progress or regress. 
when we internalize that fact, we can stop waiting for some inevitable future to arrive and actually get to work now. You know, we've all been taught that the arc of the moral universe is long, but that it bends toward justice. Maybe. Maybe it will. But that has always been an aspiration. It is not a guarantee. The arc doesn't bend itself. It's not bent inevitably by some mysterious force. The real truth, which is scarier and also more liberating, is that we bend it. Thank you. Support for this show comes from Brooks. I've really gotten dinner running this year, so I have to tell you about the Ghost 16 from Brooks, because this shoe is kind of a game changer. I found the cushioning to be next level comfortable. It's incredibly soft, yet surprisingly lightweight. It's literally comfortable every time my foot hits the pavement. The Ghost 16 from Brooks isn't just a shoe for me. It's a daily boost for my runs. Visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. This show is brought to you by Schwab. With Schwab investing themes, it's easy to invest in ideas you believe in, like active lifestyle, healthy eating, wearable tech, and more. Choose from over 40 themes. Buy as is or customize the stocks in a theme to fit your goals. Learn more at schwab.com slash thematic investing. Hey listeners, it's Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. Something Andrew Morantz mentioned at the end of his talk that really struck me was about the way social media is built, specifically that it's designed to produce big, intense emotions to give us a thrill that keeps us coming back for more. That little thrill triggers a release of dopamine in our brains, and this causes us to feel good and makes it really hard to stay away from social media. And in that way, social media actually encourages addictive behavior. Dr. Anna Lemke, a world expert on addiction and the chief of Stanford University's dual diagnosis addiction clinic, says that since smartphones have allowed us to be constantly engaging on social media, we're now all addicts to an extent. We seek attention, validation, and distraction, and our little pocket computers are right there, ready to deliver, offering us instant gratification. Now, this isn't exactly breaking news. Scholars and clinicians have been raising the red flag about the dangers of spending too much time online since the 1990s, and it's finally being talked about more often. The World Health Organization has even deemed excessive internet use a growing problem. And some governments like China and South Korea have officially declared internet addiction a public health hazard. But the thing is, we're living in an attention economy. Our attention and data are worth big bucks, and there's massive incentives for social media companies to try to keep us all plugged in. If you've ever tried to take a break from your digital devices but gave up, you wouldn't be alone, and it wouldn't be fair to call it a personal failing or a lack of willpower that keeps us scrolling, swiping, and liking. There are sophisticated algorithms at work designed to keep us tapping. Tristan Harris, the co-founder of Time Well Spent, an advocacy group promoting moral integrity in software design, puts it this way. We've lost control of our relationship with technology because technology has become better at controlling us. If that sounds a little paranoid, 
Consider this. Natasha Schul, the author of Addiction by Design, tells us that apps like Facebook, Snapchat, and Instagram are designed with the same addictive reward pattern that slot machines use. And this is the same neural circuitry we see at work in cocaine addiction. All of that begs the question, how ethical is it for social media companies to intentionally create what arguably amounts to an addiction to their product? I, for one, am very concerned about this myself. Two professors from Santa Clara University have written that the way in which social media platforms addict their users is both demeaning and objectionably exploitative. In an article published in a business ethics journal, the professors who conducted this study point out the way in which these companies are able to command our attention is by using our own information against us. They know what we like. They know how to hold our attention. Using this data, they can customize our experience and maximize our likelihood of becoming addicted. Despite the benefits to social media, like its potential to connect people, strengthen communities, and provide information and resources to a wide audience instantly, it's clear these advantages don't come without drawbacks. And at some point, the negative impacts of social media may very well outweigh the positives if something isn't done to correct course. Many people, myself included, think we're already there. As Andrew Morant said, combating online trolls and misinformation requires a new way of designing social media, one that doesn't use data and algorithms that drive us into deeper and deeper rabbit holes of extreme content, capitalize on widening political divides, and allow deadly misinformation to spread. While we figure out what it could look like for social media companies to own up to the fact that they're optimizing for maximal emotional engagement is, as Morantz put it, actively harming the world, one thing seems certain. I think we've gotten to a point where it's time to optimize for something else. Thanks so much for listening today. This episode was produced by Transmitter Media and fact-checked by Ted. And special thanks to Anna Phelan, Sammy Case, Grace Rubenstein, Maria Lagis, and Colin Helms. I'm Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter. Stay well, and I'll talk to you next week. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.